and welcome to Public Affairs, a weekly production of WRBH 88.3 FM. I'm Anne Giel, and I'll be your host for today. So today we're going to be talking about a free event that is open to the public this weekend at NOMA in association with the new Inventing Acadia Painting in Place in Louisiana exhibit. So I'm here today with scholar, writer, and artist Jeffrey Derensberg. Hi, Anne. How are you? All right. <laughs> so Jeffrey is a member of the Itagapot Ishak Nation, and his work explores the intersections of cultural studies and mixed ethnicity. Um, he also likes to call himself an editor who's not a chief of the zine. <laughs> Bobancha is still a place indigenous culture from New Orleans. Uh, and I, I'm just going to read off this little quote uh, that I believe was on one of your bios. Is it a quote from me? Uh, sounds, this has your voice, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, I think this really sums up your outlook. Um, it says, he's interested in the knowledge of flora, fauna, and people his ancestors carried with them and wishes to connect this sort of Louisiana-specific knowledge to the knowledge urban natives such as himself have in negotiating indigenity. So that's kind of his gist. I thought that was a real nice yeah, thank you. summation there. So he'll be discussing um, all of the works on view uh, this Saturday, January 11th, at uh, noon to 1 p.m., for a gallery talk in yes. association with this Inventing Acadia exhibit. So why don't you give us a brief synopsis of the exhibit, and then we'll talk about maybe how it intersects with your work, and then we'll get to the gallery. Sure. Uh, the exhibit, Inventing Acadia, uh, I'm not the curator of it. I come into the exhibit through one of the curators, Katie Full, at the New Orleans Museum of Art. And it is an exploration of the ways people have attempted to depict the landscape and people of this area of mostly Louisiana, but there are also works from um, other places in the Gulf, especially Mississippi. Nicaragua, and, right? What? Isn't there one from Nicaragua? Yes, there are some paintings that are sort of of the similar style that are from other places as well, including Nicaragua. And uh, it's a an exhibit that explores the way Europeans who are used to painting landscapes that are large vistas, you know, rolling hills and et cetera, adjusted to painting smaller scenes, areas where one cannot see as far in swamps and painting land that is intimately interspersed with wetlands. Also the way that they thought of the people. There are depictions of indigenous populations. There are depictions of enslaved people. And there are depictions not only of people of European ancestry, but of their imagined European-style gods living here in Louisiana. And a good bit of the exhibit is them trying to negotiate their artistic training, artistic worldview with a new environment, with new not only new flora and fauna and people to depict, but also uh, an environment that just looks dr drastically different from where they're likely to have come from in Europe. Yeah. Um so there's gonna there's over sixty paintings on exhibit. Yes, it's a large exhibit. And it's the first like big landscape exhibit, I think, in over forty years, right? That's what I'm given to understand, okay. yes. And I think probably a thing that I liked about the exhibit uh, that makes it different from other landscape exhibits I have seen is that there is a mixture of styles and a mixture of 
viewpoints amongst the painters. And there's also an indigenous presence in the exhibit. Not only there's one sculptor who is indigenous who is in the exhibit, and then there are also baskets. And the baskets come from area First Nations, including the Chittimacha, including my own people, the Atakapa Ishag, Kushada people, Choctaw. And I think that uh, is those baskets not only sort of a utilitarian for function, people could use them for things such as gathering harvests, uh, et cetera, storing objects, but also they had a decorative function and many things native people would make would have both a decorative and a sort of a practical function. So they kind of ground the exhibit to me. It's something that really makes me uh, appreciate uh, that. There's also some work by a well-known indigenous sculptor, Edmonia Lewis. And one of the works which uh, depicts uh, the marriage of Hiawatha, it's an 1874 work of hers. That is a legend from the Haudenosaunee people of the Northeast, also known as the Iroquois. And Edmonia Lewis was a mixed ethnicity African native person. And this piece, as I recall, was exhibited here at an exhibition in the 19th century. And now it is returning to Bulbancha, as I call the city, or in New Orleans, as many people call it. Um, it is returning, and it's a good, a good time to be able to really look at that piece, but also talk about the artistic legacy of people of mixed African and indigenous heritage, of which we have many, many people here in town, and myself included. Um, so, I mean, I guess we can start by saying, uh, I did want to point out that a landscape is a creative act, like in, in and of itself, right? And they're sort of brought forth by filtering and sort of excluding certain elements. That is correct. So, you know, the the world exists as it is in some sense, but we are always making sense of it or picking out parts to focus on. And landscape painting tends to focus on whatever I guess the painter found interesting in the landscape, but there are still some typical things one sees. And many of these landscapes depict uh, the swamp or various other types of interactions between land and water. It's hard to even separate those two things here, um, the land and the water, because we're always thinking about water here, even when we're on the land. You don't have to be in a boat to be surrounded by water here, to experience floods, to experience whatever water issues we experience here in the city. And so what perhaps makes these paintings interesting uh, as part of a larger history of landscape painting is that interaction between land and water and also the really beautiful depictions of the swamps um, things that are you know endangered things that are really beautiful and many people have not perhaps been to some of our swamp lands have perhaps not seen how beautiful they are. Um, it would be nice, or at least you know, from my point of view, that it would get people interested not only in the artwork, which is extremely interesting, and I want people to be interested in, but also the landscape that it depicts is also quite interesting. And I hope that people will take more of an interest in being out in nature and experiencing that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, once you're there, uh, someone told me that apparently 
in other places, the sky doesn't have the same, like, sort of pink, pinkish-orange hue that yeah. it turns at night. Is that true? I don't know. I was like, I, that can't be. <laughs> I don't know, but, like, our skies is, is kind unique. of... One of the things that, you know, notice in a lot of European landscape painting is hills and mountains, and we don't really have much of that here. And so, I mean, I've noticed when I've lived in a place with mountains, I lived in Colorado, and I could, if I ever got lost driving around, I could always orient myself to the mountains that were near my house because I had a distinctive look to them. You can't really do that here. There's a different way of thinking about navigation or a different way of thinking about the landscape when you can't see beyond a couple hundred meters, maybe, when you're in the swamp. And these painters were attempting to capture that, not only the beauty of it, but what was to them a very strange environment. If you'd come from France, for example, there's not really a lot that's like the Atchafalaya Basin, for example, which yeah. is a beautiful place. You know. It's a very uh, jungly, subtropical, yeah. um, just lush with the... People see a lot of, you know, built, built Louisiana landscapes, but um, if you go down to the... To the uh, to those natural, you know, uh, sort of more, what's the word, uh, untouched by. Yes, it's all a little bit. You're going to get real muddy. It's all no a little bit walkway. touched these yeah. days. But, yeah, there are places where. Sitting on top of an oil pipeline. <laughs> I think the other thing that really interests uh, some of these landscape painters, and these are things I talk about, uh, are the indigenous populations that they portray. And the first ever attempt or the first one I think that has come down to us, uh, a portrayal of indigenous people by the French was from a man named Alexander de Botts. And uh, there's a painting he did in 1735, uh, Descent de Sauvage de uh, which is sketches of savages of various nations in New Orleans. Um, I'm a big champion of the word Bulbancha, the original name for this area, um, instead of using New Orleans. But he actually puts Bulbancha on the bottom of the painting, too. He labels it both ways. And in that painting, there is a member of my tribe. Uh, there is an Atakapa'ishak person in it, and there are various native people, and there are items that are being shipped out for export. The people are standing on the shore of the river. The items that are going out for export are, you know, bear grease and bison tallow and smoked bison side, so oil and charcuterie were being exported then. And you know what? People still have an interest in those products here now. And from that time on, there have been attempts to depict the indigenous populations here who dress differently from people in Europe and have different customs. And in an age before you know, sending images on the internet or through your phone, and before even photography, some the of these, yeah. the, to understand what someone in another culture would look like, it was necessary, you know, to for people to have paintings and to ship them back to Europe and to show people in an attempt to show people what they could encounter if they were to come over to uh, the Americas. So this brings up an interesting. Um, idea about how these landscapes are also uh, say a lot about representation. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, and they also say a lot uh, in relation to political histories. Um, you can see in the landscapes sort of the scars that the land has bore. Yeah, so that's, there are examples in these landscapes of swamps next to plantations uh, or I prefer the word slave labor colony to plantations, but there aren't 
many depictions of enslaved people and the land that those enslaved people worked. There are depictions of many shipping vessels, and those vessels were not just pleasure boats. They were designed to extract resources from this area for the sake of uh, European invaders. And so that is a different goal than perhaps, you know, the indigenous population trading and living. But almost all of the boats we will see in the exhibit are commercial boats of some sort of or other that are involved in the process of extracting resources. And these are things that were, you know, uh, very important to the Europeans. Uh, even the painters, yes, were extracting resources and that they were taking these images and setting the narrative for these stories rather than the indigenous population doing that. But also, um, as I mentioned, slave people were one of the, probably the largest resources, resource extraction in human history of an occupying power where the um, extractions of human beings from Africa. And so that is also part of the depiction, and I'll talk some about that in the exhibit. I'm going to focus more on the indigenous population. Like any works of art, there's many ways to look at it, and there is an excellent book that goes along with the exhibit that was edited by Katie Full uh, that's available there at NOMA, and I strongly recommend people look it's at it great. and get it. And it is a magnificent piece of scholarship and just very well produced and I'm happy to own a copy. Um, you owe it to your state. You should all go check one out. It's really great. Yes, and you can also get them from the public library, which is even I, better. I always recommend my favorite public Everyone uh, says support your local public, public library. <laughs> the only one who not only meets my expectations but always exceeds That's wonderful. the library. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some of the things the curation was sort of focused on. Um, first, we did mention the inclusion of indigenous artists, women, and people of color in the exhibition, um, how the portrayal of African-Americans, um, how the Louisiana natives were portrayed versus the tourists or the outsiders. Well, that was it, one of the most interesting You know, it's kind too. of interesting. There are two paintings there where Louisiana is personified as a white woman. Uh, one of them, she is breastfeeding a bunch of white children. And there's an idea that the Louisiana they created is a white woman who gives resources. Um, that, of course, is not always reflected in the population. Um, and uh, the there is a sort of idea that that's they have identified the state that way, and that is a way of ignoring other populations here, for sure. Um, Definitely, uh, sort of uh, not giving due credit for what is uh, all, all the uh, imprints that have really been left. Yes, by very many people um, who are not of European background. And, I mean, not only African people, not All only indigenous food. populations, I mean, but Cayenne is what South American, and uh, but also, of course, you know, a lot of the food culture we have in the city now is you know Vietnamese origin. There's large Filipino populations nearby, mm -hmm. and so. All of those people are also people who make the place what it is. Um, of course, the word Bulbancha, the original name, meant place of foreign languages, which is indicates a mixture of populations of people, different cultural groups who are all living here and at the same time. And this is even uh, sort of reflected in the art with uh, 
certain uh, paintings would uh, show, you know, a rare record of people of, you know, various different skin tones. That is true. And, and you know, social classes, you know, appearing to share space with no one having authority. There so, are a couple of images like that. There, one particular that's of a funeral of an enslaved person in Mississippi, uh, and. This is a remarkable painting that uh, I will probably talk about it at some point there, but really people should should see the exhibit or visit it or hear about it or go and listen to the talk. And there's a lot of different ways to interact with that exhibit there at NOMA. And I would recommend, you know, any kind of interaction uh, talk will give an, an opportunity for people to hear about it. And, uh, there have been other talks, but mine's going to be a little bit more focused on the indigenous aspects. And some of the most famous depictions of indigenous people by Europeans are in the exhibit, especially one by Alfred Boisseau. Uh, it's a depiction of indigenous people walking along a swamp sometime in the 19th century. There are four figures in the scene, and they detail that he put into the objects they are carrying is remarkably detailed. Um, there's European-style shirts, there are native clothes, there are hybrid mixtures of clothing, there's a blowgun, which was a common hunting implement in the swamp here. It's too much style, so much style. I have a blowgun. <laughs> uh, I will not be bringing it to the dog. Uh, but also, the, you know, there's the European musket. There are women carrying baskets. It's a remarkable depiction, and we'll be talking about some of the objects in the depiction in the talk I'm giving. And there are also some of the painters who depict indigenous populations as just generic, where they don't even have tattoos and they don't have anything that marks them out as part of any particular tribe. And one of these depictions is in the Atchafalaya Basin, and... If it were the Atchafalaya, normally it would probably be Atakapaishak or Chittimacha people who would be depicted. But there's no real evidence in the depiction that they're really those people. Whereas others... Is the, this the one where it was just like a, a group of like light-skinned uh, nudes, women on the bottom left corner? Yes, and there's yeah, even a there's even that. like a fanciful-looking horse <laughs> yeah. running around wild in the swamp and a bizarre-looking dog slash bobcat or whatever animal it is. There's the alligator secretly watching yeah, some sort of animal about so to kill us. There are people, it's and great. that's kind of a depiction that shows kind of the way the painter is in the painting because then the painter's ideas of what is there, uh, so sort of in for putting an idea in there rather than letting the scene speak to themselves. I the, thought the depiction of uh, the women in that scene were really interesting when you compare them to the depiction of the uh, foreign women who always had, you know, nice, really nice outfits. Yeah, the, uh, the painting we were talking about was by Toussaint Bijot uh, called Achapalaya, Louisiana. Oh, yeah, you guys got to go. And, um, go Go Google it. The other one by it's Alfred Boisseau, if you wanted to know the name, is Marche d'Indien de la Louisiane. Um, sorry, my French is terrible now. So my grandfather's not around to hear me speak French with such a bad accent. But um, I do I think that pain. the depictions, though, do say a lot about how Europeans viewed the indigenous population. And some of the depictions are actually quite interesting and excellent. They're um, one of the ones that, I don't know if this is the first time it's ever been in a major exhibition or one of the first times. Um, 
the Clement one? Uh, not that one. I'll find it. In any case, uh, one of the other things that I think people should fo- uh, be interested in is that this exhibit contains a number of baskets. And baskets are an important cultural artifact of indigenous populations here. And the baskets that are in the exhibition are ones that one does not normally see. Oh, I was talking, by the way, about uh, – I'll come back to this. The baskets are ones that one doesn't um, always see, ones of the such good quality in an exhibition. And they even have one of the rare 19th century baskets from my own tribe, the Atakapa Yishak, is in the exhibition from a collector in Baton Rouge. And there are Chittimacha baskets and Kushada baskets and Choctaw and – one basket where it's unclear exactly who made it. Uh, it could have even been made by uh, a non-Indigenous person. But that's always an issue in Louisiana and 19th century artifacts is that many things were taught to um, people of European descent by Indigenous populations. And it can be hard to tell who made it. I mean, if you find a Say you know a canoe made out of cypress in the Atchafalaya. Who made that canoe? Who knows? Like Cajuns were making palm Cajun, Could be too. Cajuns. Could be Creoles. Could be Chittimacha. Could be Atakapa Ishak or people who are mixtures of all four or any number of yeah, other mixtures. Everyone really just adapted to their new right. lifestyle. And, and uh, there's a lot of uh, I guess stuff that's overlooked in Louisiana culturally that things that are from the indigenous population that people sometimes so forget sad. about. Like Food for, or you know, whatever. For example, the designs on these baskets, uh, oh. they sort of reflect the natural surroundings on yes. the intricate waterways. So um, I think the basket might have been actually named Alligator Entrails. And yeah, there is one. And another one was named Worm Track because yeah. that was the sort of serpentine That's one of the one of the Chittimacha baskets and it, it does look very much like, in, like the shape of and intestines. And so you could say that that is the uh, first landscape oh. representation. The one that's, you know, closest um, to an original creation, the first inhabitants of the territory. Yeah, there are. And, you know, there was other sort of representations on pottery as well. Um if you, or just at this exhibit, yeah, <laughs> at this exhibit. Um, also, I'd like to point out, you know, the, the baskets are functional, but they are also decorative, and uh, many native things would serve a dual purpose like that. Some of these baskets are used for probably harvesting. The Takapai Ishak basket is, uh, I think, very likely a pecan harvesting basket, um, and. One of the Choctaw baskets seems to be for uh, harvesting corn. Um, I don't know what stage of the corn production process it would be. It was a multi-stage process that Americans don't really do anymore with corn. Um, <laughs> At what point did you think uh, the the artistry, you know, basket weaving and whatnot, beading, began to take on more of a uh, tourist market? Well, I mean, at some point. Um, Baskets are wonderful, and there are people still make them and still use them, and they're a sustainable resource, you know, because river cane and palmetto are things that do grow. The river cane is kind of a little endangered in some areas. Um, the thing with baskets, though, after a while, there are certain things where people would start using metal tools for the same thing, like straining, or they might have different types of canvas bags rather than, you know, hauling something in a basket. And so... People are always trying to upgrade, huh? But any kind of artwork that is beautiful, people start collecting it. And at one point, you know, like many Native people now who make baskets are not making them for practical use, per se. They are... 
you know, often made as art objects. That doesn't mean necessarily they're for sale, but the, they're used um, maybe in religious purposes or for decoration. It's part of uh, this, their symbols. Yeah, and they are, you know, things of cultural identity. And there's, I do know some basket makers, even some here in town. And there's also a connection to their cultural heritage that they get when they are making baskets. So they're not just for display and not just for any particular use other than that connection. They're performing their sort of culture and they're connecting with their roots. Yeah, and, and a lot of things that the indigenous peoples did, they were very sustainable things, um, but... They also required a lot of time to produce, and they require maintenance, and that's fine. That was a sustainable way to live. Um, if I've uh, last year, I was involved in helping to cover a palmetto hut with palmetto, and uh, just a hut the size of this little recording room we're in required about 500 palmetto fronds. And maybe each bush you'd come across in the woods might have one good one. <laughs> and so there are weeks of walking around with machetes in the woods, harvesting palmetto. And then the process of tying them to the willow frame is very intricate. You know, like it's a, I would say a little bit tedious, but it's a wonderful process because you can really get into a rhythm with it. And then magically, out of completely sustainable goods, you have a waterproof building, you know, and it takes people to come together and, and work and do that at the same time, like, it's very sustainable. And, and you have that sort of connection to a timelessness nowadays, you know, you could... You can just, it's so easy to get things done now. And, you know, people are like, manual labor, what? Go collect Yeah, it's, I'm kind of glad that I grew up with a little bit of both. Um, crabbing, like I, I mentioned crabbing recently. So it's like, you can just buy them at the store. You know, uh, you know like I've, I've done a lot of the traditional Louisiana arts, I guess. I've crabbed, I've been fishing, I've been, I've caught shrimp in a shrimp boat. I've, uh, you know. I've never been a successful hunter, but fairly successful Cut at fishing. Uh, none of that, Horses. although my family on our farm in Point Capu Parish did kill a hog every January, okay. and so I've been involved in that process. And I guess growing up, I didn't know this was a thing that, you know, now I've see, you see boucherie, you know, Anthony Bourdain went to them, and you see them all over the place, and you go to a boucherie now, and there's all these, like, uh, food tourists who want to go food to it. Tourists. And, you know, that's fine. It's a wonderful thing to do, but for us, it was just, like, a, a big family party, and would use every part of the pig, you know, probably except the hair and the oink, as they used to say. I think, uh, what's his name? Clifton Chenier has a great, uh, great Zotico song about this. I'll tell you about it after, but he says that exact same thing. Yeah. Um, Everything on the hog. Yeah, and oh, I miss those things, that the way they tasted. The food tasted so intense. There's an intense pork flavor from, from that. that it's is, just like grease and like just pork. Yeah, mm. it's, and then the, the meal. And, you know, and I found a real, con, you know, like my tribe is a tribe from Mexico and um, and Louisiana. People forget that Louisiana's next door to Mexico. It's just that now we call part of Mexico Texas. Um, and when I've encountered a lot of people from Mexico, um, when I lived in Colorado, we would compare notes about these boucheries. And it's amazing how the indigenous population of Mexico does it in the same way. Even the same oh, dishes yeah. made the day of the killing, they make organ meat stew here and you make it in Mexico. The crackling they made looked like the crackling of Point Capu Parish. Humanity's the same, man. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're any sort of marginalized, uh, oh, that's too great. So let's talk about um, maybe some of the 
more social issues related to the exhibit. Um, I did want to mention how it definitely sort of represents this weird fascination that America has always had with untamed wilderness. I would like to talk about that. Yeah. Because it is one of the... So uh, an odd thing with indigenous people is that almost everything the average American knows about indigenous people is wrong. Almost everything. And one of the most frequent wrong things is untamed wilderness. So the Europeans would sometimes come upon an indigenous village and see a village like, look at them living out here in the wilderness, whereas nothing could be further from the truth. If there's a village in the forest, I guarantee that forest was planted That's by the village. That's highly tamed, right? You know, the, the, and the Europeans would sometimes even say, like, wow, they're so lucky. They found a place in the forest with all the plants they need right here, <laughs> ignoring the fact that the indigenous people might have been living in this forest for centuries and then over those centuries had planted all the useful plants and made sure all the useful trees were right there so that indigenous people were never really living in wilderness. They were living with nature, though, in a way that Europeans found hard to comprehend. Um, I once asked um, a researcher here, you know, I was doing some research about this area, um, but pre-colonization, he said, well, there was nothing there where New Orleans is now. It was just swamp. And I just thought, like, well, first, swamp isn't nothing. There's a lot of great stuff in the swamp. Swamp is our home for native people. And we, you know, you know, the idea of Europeans coming to the swamp and starving in what was essentially a grocery store for us was kind of a strange thing. Food everywhere. But also, you can almost pinpoint the locations of native villages if you find a concentration of very useful plants somewhere. There was probably a settlement there. Um, native people at the time of uh, European colonization had undoubtedly the most advanced forestry engineering in the world and the most advanced agriculture, which is why some of the most popular plants in the world now are indigenous plants. When we think about tomatoes, there were no tomatoes in Italian food or Middle Eastern food. There was no potatoes in European food. There was no... Wait, there was no tomatoes in Italian food? No. Tomatoes are an indigenous thing from the Americas. So when we think about tomatoes, potatoes, uh, corn or maize, which is the world's most popular crop, when we think of, you know, a crop that's used all over the world every day, tobacco or chocolate, these are all, uh, I mean, is coffee indigenous? Oh, no, I was just saying one of the most popular uh, (laughs) agricultural products. (laughs) But when we think about... um, Things like that. These are important foods to world cuisine, so much so that there are cuisines that are, you can't even think about them without using those foods. And yet, they're, they're commodities. They're not. They're not even. And yet, they are not. Your, you know, potatoes are not Irish. Tomatoes are not Italian. Those are all indigenous foods, and people have become so used to using indigenous foods that people sometimes can forget that. To, to have developed these foods required an extraordinary knowledge of agriculture to be able to develop all these useful foods. And even... Gifts, right? They're gifts that I, I definitely feel like... Uh, the, yeah, that people use still now. And um, not only even, you know, corn, a lot of corn we have now, but also the process of using it and how it's typically, like, better ways to process it or grow it or corn that was healthier than the corn we have now was grown by indigenous people. It just takes a little bit more work to grow. I heard... Tell me if, this, if you ever heard this. When the casket girls came over from France, they went on strike because they 
were used to having normal bread, and all they had here now was cornbread, <laughs> and they had like never had it, and were just like, you know, is it does this yeah. sound like it could be? True? I mean, I could see that being true because one thing Europeans really wanted to do was to set up European crops and European animals here. You know, so if we look at something environmentalists talk about, the environmental destruction caused by American cattle, you know, who that are not very sustainable, as opposed to bison. Bison are completely sustainable. They have no environmental impact. Um, huge bison herd will, you know, will not destroy a piece of land. And and bison is also very healthy, but it was not what Europeans were used to. Europeans had already domesticated a big wild animal called the auroch, which no longer lives in Europe. It's only the domesticated wow. version. Uh, and here there was a bison, and rather than really domesticating that, they chose, I mean, in many cases, uh, the U.S. Army would kill herds of bison as an attempt to kill off the indigenous people who relied on them in the 19th, in the 19th century. Um, so the so they would never eat the bison too. Like they, they would, just, but like they didn't really develop a culture on it. I mean, there were bison here in Louisiana. We have a place in Saint Bernard Parish near here called Bayou Buff. and that means you know beef land. But when they meant when they said buff back then, what they meant was bison. There used to be bison around here. Um, not since the nineteenth century, though. Um, I could and, see beef filtering down really slowly. Yeah, <laughs> but there were, you know, there were bison all over Louisiana. It was, it was a, but they were all killed off, especially though in the prairies. Um, okay, where, where was I here? Um, okay, we can maybe, I think this is a sort of relevant to uh, an issue that we're sort of still facing in this area today. Sure. So all these privileged European painters, poets, poets, writers come over and sort of build a little paradise. Um, and then we have this uh, rise in Louisiana landscape. It sort yeah. of uh, influences the whole landscape movement worldwide, right? Uh, and so do you think there was ever what the effect of that was? Um, sort of with these people coming over and sort of creating new myths? For example, the title of the exhibit, Inventing Acadia, yeah. um, that the poem that sort of uh, landed Acadia as our state brand, I guess you could say, was written by a Harvard professor who had never been to Louisiana, and he just heard about it from one of his students. Right. And so he, he created the myth. Well, you know, and then that word uh, even around, around Lafayette now, they would call that Acadiana a lot in English. Uh, whereas in French out there, when you're speaking French, people still refer to it as La Tacapa or the Atacapa district, uh, which is named after the you know one of the indigenous nations. Where I'm, I grew I'm, up, interestingly. Yeah, <laughs> it's my favorite of the ones, but like not the only one for sure. But it does privilege, uh, you know, some people over others. Uh, that obsession with that word, and there's a lot of strangeness Definitely. about. Um, it's know. a marketing. It's I'm part Cajun marketing. myself, but I don't call myself Cajun. I definitely have Acadian ancestors, but <coughs> but I do um, I do find it strange a lot of the ways there um, that that culture has become so synonymous with Louisiana, and it is a Louisiana culture, but it is also 
you know, a culture from Canada. And and then there's what happened to the cultures yeah. that came down from Canada. Like Canada, Acadians are a Métis population. They're not white people. They and somehow our white people here, which is very strange. Um, so there's there are things like, uh, like that. Um, I do think that they, one thing that is different, maybe an invention of these artists, is the concept that swamp is a foreboding wilderness, that it is something strange, that it is something uh, mysterious, and that it's something beautiful is something I'm going to go with them with, but they're demystifying the swamp uh, can easily be done by just being acquainted with it. That exactly. it has, it's a, you know, an environment bikes. that has certain rules and certain ways it works and plant species and those are many of them are useful and I'm, I'm often surprised by the useful species here that did not really become popular um, with Europeans range of clams which were a ubiquitous food source here uh, if you ever walk on a beach here and you see a huge pile of white clams that's usually because indigenous people were eating this thing and left behind hmm. something called a shell midden there are some in Lake Pontchartrain a lot of them have been taken for driveway pavement. Uh, but the range of clam is disgusting to eat raw. I have taken the onus upon myself of eating one. Uh, and they're apparently even worse cooked. Um, Can you so, ment? Have you ever eaten possum? Uh, I think I probably have. Um, I've eaten raccoon, and I found that very unpleasant. Can you imagine how sad the day when, you know, the social stigma got big enough where they were like, oh, we got to stop eating possum. Yeah. We're starving and there's food running around <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah, people in my family eat pretty much anything. But, but I do think that that idea of the wilderness is uh, is pretty strange. Um, I've never eaten possum, though. Uh, Get out but, there. And... But lotus seeds, that's one that people eat. Grana volet, they call it in French. Uh, swamp lotus seeds are pretty good. They mm -hmm. remind me a little bit of uh, pepitas or pumpkin seeds. Real forager seeds. out there, huh? Yeah, sometimes. Like foraging for your meal. Look, <laughs> I never pass up a free lunch, so oh, it's right? free. Out there. <laughs> it's the best nature's grocery store. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up our show for today. Thanks for being here, Jeffrey. Thank you. And don't you, forget, Anne. his gallery talk is going to be this Saturday at Noma uh, from noon to 1. Well, this wraps up our show for today. Thanks for being here, Jeffrey, and thank you all for listening. This has been Public Affairs on WRBH 88.3 FM.